morning, church. Good to have you here this morning. Good to see everyone. Uh, if you're a guest, we welcome you. We say welcome home. If you're looking for a church home, Vera Christian Church, we'd love to be a part of your spiritual family. Hey, we welcome those who are joining us live stream as well. We know you're out there. Give us a shout out. Just jot down a little comment or something uh, while you're watching. We'd like to know who everybody is out there when we can. All right, I want to start off today with a pop quiz. Okay, pop quiz, three questions based on last Sunday's sermon. I want us to find out how well everybody was paying attention. If you weren't here last Sunday, you get a pass uh, if you're from out of town. Uh, you get a zero if you're a member, but you weren't here because you should have been here. All right, pop quiz. We're going to wake up in the morning. As soon as we wake up, we're going to remember our what? Baptism. Very good. Remember the Lutherans, first thing they do when they get up, make the sign of the cross and remember their baptism. Grace, everything from yesterday is forgiven. There's enough grace for today. Okay, second thing. When we, make up, when we make our bed, assuming we make our bed, when we make our bed, we're going to reflect on and remember God's, what, starts with a C. That's right, creation. Creation. Now, God brought order out of chaos, and we're reflecting that. First thing we do in the morning, get that chore done, and we make our bed. All right, and then the third thing was when we brush our teeth. When we brush our teeth, we are thanking God for our what? No, not our teeth. It starts with a B. See the B up there? There's a clue, right? It's our body. We thank God for our body. God's, we are bodies and spirits. God's redeemed our bodies. The care and maintenance of it takes a lot of maintenance to maintain a body when you got a body. The care and maintenance of our body is a sanctified act of worship as well as helping to take care of the bodies of those around us. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday, you're thinking, what in the world is this all about? What have you been talking about? So our current series for this month is called 24. And we are looking at the routines, the habits, the actions that we go through in an average day. And we're using them as hooks or triggers to help us connect with God and to worship God all through the day, every day. Like right now, this is a worship service. We're in corporate worship. It means as a group, there's, there's a liturgy that we go through. That liturgy literally means an order of worship. So if you've been a member here for a while, you know what we do. We do the same thing every Sunday. We have the same kinds of things, and we're worshiping God. Likewise, in your day, on Monday or Wednesday or Friday, you have certain habits and routines that you go through every day. And what we're trying to do is look at those as a liturgy, a liturgy of the ordinary. We can worship God throughout the day. And if we use these as reminders and triggers, as we talked about, the three examples from last Sunday. And hopefully, you know, these aren't just little hacks or whatever. These are, hopefully, some of us have been thinking about that. I know some of you have because you've come to me and said from last week, yeah, I mean, every time I brush my teeth now, I'm thinking of the body or I made my bed. I've started making my bed. So, we start using these to reflect on God and to connect with God. Because let's face it, if you watch the series 24 with Jack Bauer, none of us is going to, we don't have days like that. We don't defuse nuclear bombs. We don't uncover a plot to assassinate the president. We're not going to interrogate a, a terrorist. We're not going to be involved in a high-speed car chase. Certainly not in Vero Beach. We have average ordinary days, but God is in those days. So that's the whole premise here. So every Sunday... In this month, we're looking at three things. We'll look at 12 altogether. 
We're looking at three average things we do in a day, and we can connect with God and worship Him in those ways. So, let's look at three more. Let's start with losing your keys. All right, losing your keys. Luke 15, 8, Jesus said, Won't you light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? By the way, so let's just, let me do an, an informal survey here. How many people over the last 30 days, it was not a trick question or anything, but how many over the last 30 days have maybe misplaced your keys or lost your keys? <laughs> yeah, my hand's up too. Pretty common experience of losing our keys. Uh, pastor Steve Barlow, one of the pastors of this church, two weeks ago, he was up here on a Friday, Two weeks ago, Friday, he was just picking up some tables for a garage sale. So he carries the table out of the building over here on the east side. The door closes behind him and automatically locks. And it's at that moment he realizes, well, wait a minute, my keys are inside the building. So it wasn't exactly losing his keys, but in the same kind of category, he had left his keys, locked them in the building. Unfortunately, he had also locked his cell phone inside his truck. So he's got no keys, no cell phone. He walks around the building looking for another way in. He can't get in without breaking something. He can't call anybody. There's nobody else up here. And so finally, he decides to walk down to the Winn-Dixie in hopes of encountering somebody he knows. Now, this is Vera Beach. It's a small town. And sure enough, he gets to Winn-Dixie, and he runs into Kelly Gorris, a member of our church, just happens to be there. So he's able to borrow her phone. He calls his wife, Becky. Becky won't answer. You know why? She doesn't recognize the phone number that she's, he's calling from. I'm the same way. I will not answer if I don't recognize. So he can't get a hold of her. He's frantically making other phone calls. Finally gets hold of Sue Lockwood. She makes a few phone calls for him. Gets hold of Becky. She finally comes up here, lets him in. The whole thing's okay. But in the meantime, he was going through the five stages of searching for lost objects. Here they are. Number one is logic. I retrace my steps. Stage two, self-condemnation. I'm such an idiot. Where did I put those keys? Why am I such an idiot? Stage three is vexation. I get frustrated. I switch back and forth between blaming myself and blaming others. And what about God? He must know where my keys are. Why isn't he helping me? Stage four is desperation. I start looking everywhere, even places that don't make sense. And stage five is despair. I give up. I'll never find my keys. It's hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'll be trapped until the end of time. Everything is worthless. The morning is ruined. <laughs> five stages of lost things you know eventually we find our keys eventually steve got his keys we lose a half hour we lose an hour in our day however long it takes or we go get some new keys but it's not the end of the world but in the moment it can feel like an apocalypse it can feel like an apocalypse oh i gotta get the kids to school i'm not gonna be able to do that i gotta cut something out of my day today that i'm not gonna be able to accomplish it can feel like an apocalypse and you know that word apocalypse literally means an uncovering or a revelation. And these minor irritations, and we're not talking about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, are we? These are not huge things. Minor irritations like losing our keys. Or something breaks, an appliance breaks, the dishwasher, the washing machine, the car, there's a major car repair, AC, something goes out. It's an irritation. I mean, there are people in the world who don't know what they're going to eat the next day people who live with chronic pain it's not in that category we're talking about the category of small irritations the roadside ditch of lost and broken things and yet it can reveal things about us things come out you know these we get irritated sometimes 
we get short with people around us and we lose our, our temper and we show our frustrations. And there can be real underlying fears. And am I going to be able to do for my family what I need to do? Now, where are we going to find the money to take care of this repair? And we worry and we have anxiety. And instead of being, you know, just irritations and small failures, these moments can be transformed into opportunities to connect with God's grace. I'm not in control, God, and I confess once again, I'm not in control. I'm not autonomous. I'm not totally independent. I need you. I need others. I still have parts in my character that I'm not all that pleased with. I need your grace and your mercy. Just opportunity of small graces. Repentance and confession is part of the breathing out and breathing in of our everyday life. And we often think of confession in, in the big sins. We're talking about minor irritations in our life because that's what we go through in an everyday process. And, and when we confess and repent, God is always ready to meet us with his grace and his forgiveness. Uh, if you haven't thought about it lately, haven't had the grace and forgiveness of God affirmed in your life lately, I was reading in the Psalms last week, Listen to what the psalmist writes about God in Psalm 103. God forgives all my sins. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercy. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. The wind blows and we're gone as though we had never been here. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. You know, we in the church are not perfect people, we're, uh, but we're new people. We're just people that rely on the grace of God. And some not-so-perfect people came to Jesus at one point, were criticizing him for hanging out with the broken and the sick, spiritually sick, and he told them a story about a woman who lost a coin. And she turned her house upside down to find it. And her reaction when she found it was over the top. And he said, God is like that woman. As passionately as we look for our lost keys, God is so much more passionately pursuing us, his sons and his daughters, in his grace and his mercy and his love. So lost keys, pretty common experience an opportunity to confess and seek God's grace daily in our lives. Number two, here's, a, here's another thing, just an ordinary thing, eating leftovers. Eating leftovers, and I want to connect that with the Word of God and communion. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, what's your ideal, your idealized meal, big family meal? So it's Thanksgiving is coming up. So let's think about Thanksgiving. Here's my ideal Thanksgiving. Like a big Walton's. Remember the Walton's? Like the Walton celebration. A huge table. We got the turkey and the ham option. We got the regular baked potatoes, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, green beans, casseroles, rolls, four different kinds of pie, ice cream, right? So this huge table laden with food. And then around that table are the grandparents, the parents, the kids, the grandkids, there's joy and laughter and celebration, and all the kids are behaving, and all the adults are behaving, and just have this wonderful celebratory meal. Now, that's the ideal. 
I got to tell you, my family, you know, Thanksgiving doesn't always work out just like that. And certainly on a day-to-day basis, day in and day out, my meals look very different than that. And a lot of times, it's just leftovers, just eating the leftover tacos. You know, just eating leftover tacos, not a big banquet, maybe not even a whole lot of people. But here's the thing about the leftovers. As we eat them, they still do the job. They do the job just like the Thanksgiving dinner does. They fill us up, and the leftovers give us nourishment. Now, I want to relate this. This is our everyday, day in and out. We are eating, and we're praying and asking God's blessing over meals, and we're connecting that to the Word of God and communion. Our worship revolves around the Word and the Lord's Supper communion. If all of a sudden, all of the church buildings and cathedrals in the world were raptured out of existence, God's people would still gather together weekly and worship Him around these two elements, the Word and communion, the Lord's Supper. And interestingly, the Bible connects both of those things with eating and nourishment. Remember Jesus, the temptations in the wilderness? And Satan comes to him, you know, tempts him with bread. And what does he say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the Old Testament in Ezekiel, in the New Testament in Revelation, God commanded the prophets to eat the scroll. This is symbolically, but to eat the scroll on which were written the words of God. They're feeding on it. They're taking it in. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul compares the word of God to bread and milk and meat that feed us and nourish us. And of course, in the Lord's Supper, the communion, when Jesus instituted some kind of a memorial by which his disciples could remember him on a regular basis, wasn't a monument. It wasn't some mystical experience. It wasn't some challenge that they had to accomplish. He just chose a meal, uh, bread and juice, elements that are available all over the world. And in his preaching, he reminded the Israelites, he said, my father gave you manna in the wilderness, but it didn't satisfy you. He said, I am the bread. I'm the food. You have to eat of me. You have to consume me. And he, he connected all of that with himself. Every time we eat a meal, we remember, or we can remember, it ultimately doesn't satisfy. We're going to have to eat again and eat again and eat again because ultimately it's God himself that we're feeding on and that we need in our lives. Norman Wiersbe writes, to say grace before a meal is among the highest and most honest expressions of our humanity. Here around the table and before witnesses, we testify to the experience of life as a precious gift to be received and given again. We acknowledge that we do not and cannot live alone, because, but, there are, but are the beneficiaries of the kindness and mysteries of grace upon grace. We're not independent, we're not autonomous. If you are alive today, and I assume most of you are, then it's because somebody fed you. We're born hungry, totally dependent on somebody to feed us. And even today, as adults, people are feeding us. Do any of us grow our own food? Do we grow wheat and grind it and make the bread? Do, Do we raise the animals that we consume? No, somebody else is doing all of that. We are dependent upon them. And in the Lord's Supper especially, we talk about at offering time, bless the gift and the giver and the gift and the giver. Well, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is the gift and God is the giver. He is the gift 
and the giver. And everything from soup to salvation comes by the gracious hand of our God. You know, I don't remember very many meals that I've eaten. I mean, they just don't stand out. There may be just a handful of meals that stand out because they were excellent. Probably the same for you. Maybe a few because they were especially bad. The worst meal I ever had, the worst meal I ever had, and I will never forget it, was a pimento cheese sandwich. And I was a teenager doing chores for a church lady back in Jacksonville, and she wanted to feed me something, so... For some reason, she put pimento cheese between two sunbeam white pieces of bread, and she gave me that. I'd never had it before. I choked it down because I didn't have the heart or the courage or whatever to say to tell her, this is disgusting, ghastly. I've never had pimento cheese since then. I don't know how you people can eat pimento cheese. But, uh, you know, so that was a memorable meal in a bad way. But 90% of what I eat, I don't remember. I couldn't tell you what I had for lunch. Three, month, you know, three weeks ago on Monday. But it nourished me. It nourished me. I can't tell you very many sermons that I've heard. I've heard thousands of sermons. Maybe, maybe a handful stand out or phrases or key points. You guys couldn't even remember the second point of my sermon from last Sunday. <laughs> I'm realistic about that. But the sermons that I've heard, they nourished me. I've read the Bible over and over and over. I don't necessarily remember everything that I read. But when I read, it nourished me. Same with the Lord's Supper. I've had communion every week for decades. I don't remember all the communion meditations. But it did what it needed to do spiritually. We keep eating. We keep feeding on the Word of God and the Lord's Supper. And when we bow in prayer, it's a recognition. It's all tied together to the provision and the grace of God. Some churches call the Lord's Supper... Eucharist, the Eucharist. You know what that word means? It literally means thanksgiving. The communion, the Lord's Supper, is the Eucharist meal of the church. It is the week in and week out thanksgiving meal of the church. So when we sit down to that plate of leftovers, just another opportunity to connect with God, worship God, pray to God, thank God. Remember, he's feeding us and nourishing us through his word and through the Lord's Supper in that form of worship. Okay, and then one more, fighting with my spouse. And if you're not married this morning, you know, just substitute whoever you need to substitute, BFF, best friend, somebody. But fighting with my spouse, connecting this with what I'm calling here, passing the peace. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Francis and Lisa Chan have written a book on marriage called You and Me Forever. I mentioned this two or three weeks ago. I just happened to uh, pick two illustrations from this. It's a great book, great book on marriage, probably the best I've ever read. Not a, not a big book either. He writes about Francis, the husband, writes about a, an argument he had with Lisa. And they were talking about Friday night, they were going to go out, and they are making plans, they were talking on the phone, and Lisa suggested miniature golf. And Francis said, that won't work. She said, why? Because there are two other couples, there are going to be six of them together, and that's too big a party, it takes too long to play miniature golf. He said, they'll divide us into two groups of three. And Lisa said, that's ridiculous. They won't do that. Same amount of time. He said, no, it's not. So they went back and forth on this. And Francis says, a wise man would have let it go. But there was, he's very competitive, and there's something in him that wanted to win the argument. So they continued to argue. And even after they hung up, Francis Chan drew a diagram to demonstrate and illustrate how two groups of three will play faster than one group of six, and he faxed it. To his wife Lisa where she works 
he says, he won the argument, but he lost the war. Uh, James 4, 6, he quotes James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he writes, for those of us who nurture a win-at-any-cost mentality, this verse should shake us to our core. Only a fool would sacrifice this much for any victory. You know what's ironic? Isn't this ironic that sometimes we don't have a real hard difficulty getting along with other people, people that we work with, neighbors, go to church with, but we do in our family. There are ingrained patterns there. We're so close together in our families that her brokenness, sinfulness, humanity, selfishness bumps up against my brokenness and sinfulness and selfishness and humanity. These ingrained patterns, and sometimes it's superficial, but sometimes it goes a lot deeper than that. And, uh, and it costs something. It costs something to be a peacemaker. It's never cheap. I mean, we're not talking about papering over things. We're talking about sometimes there have to be deep discussions and boundaries set, and we go deep. But it always costs something. It costs Jesus something to forgive. The Last Supper, you know, when he established the Lord, the communion, and he, he washed the disciples' feet. He washed 12 pairs of feet, including the feet of the one who was going to betray him shortly thereafter and it costs something when we when we pass the peace in our families when we are peacemakers sometimes we have to give up what francis was talking about that right to win and the quest for justice and fairness want to be right and vengeance it's going to cost us something i was in the uh i was visiting a catholic church one time and i I was totally unfamiliar with their liturgy in the Catholic Church. They came to the point in the service where they passed the peace. Okay, so people were standing up. Maybe some of you have done this before. They've done it in some Protestant churches as well. They're standing up and turning to each other, and they said, the peace of Christ be with you. The peace of Christ be with you. I'd never heard that before. I liked it. I said, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, what you're supposed to say is, and with you, and with you, and the peace of Christ with you. I mean, I know that now, but I didn't know it then. And likewise, the, when we pass the peace to others in our family, in our neighborhoods, the person behind the counter, maybe the, the child who's kicking the seat in the back of our seat in the theater, when we pass the peace, it's not just peace, it's the peace of Christ that we're passing. And the reason we can do that is, number one, because the Spirit of Christ is in us, producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. We're long-suffering, we're patient, we're forgiving, because God is... We are mindful that God has forgiven us this huge debt of offense and sin that we had against him. And so we've received the peace of Christ. Thank you very much. Thank you for the peace. We can't stop there. Now we turn around and say, and the peace of Christ be with you. Peace of Christ be with you and with you. And not just other church members and neighbors and co-workers, but right there in the family where it is often so hard to pass the peace. Anne Lamott writes, Earth is forgiveness school. I like that. Earth is forgiveness school. She continues, You might as well start at the dinner table. That way you can do this work, the work of forgiveness, 
and comfortable pants. Are you married to or live with or in close association with somebody who's difficult to love or difficult to get along with? When you think about it, we're all hard to live with. We are all hard to live with. If you have somebody like that in your life, praise God. You have an opportunity to earn a master's degree in forgiveness, a Ph.D., a doctorate in forgiveness and long-suffering and patience. You're in school. We're in school. We're in forgiveness school. What is marriage? The Bible says, among other things, it's a parable. It's an illustration of the relationship, the relationship of men to women. Why did God put men and women together? Men and men get along better. Women and women get along better. I get that. What's this, some kind of cosmic joke? We got Venus and Mars and people who are so different from each other, so no wonder they do this. What is it? No. The reason, one of the reasons is, it's an illustration and a parable of the relationship between Christ and the church. And look what it cost him to make his bride, the church, acceptable, presentable, holy, blameless, so that that wedding, that marriage could take place. That's what a marriage is. It's our opportunity to reflect the gospel of God's grace with another person. And, and again, to the unmarried, with our friends, the people that we live with, whom we live in close proximity. It's just a parable to the world. This is how the gospel works with another living human being. It's grace, mercy, forgiveness, patience, long-suffering, hoping the best, believing the best, never failing, hanging in there. Blessed are the peacemakers. God is the greatest peacemaker. When we have that argument with our spouse, we have an opportunity to worship God by passing the peace. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our average ordinary days. We're going to go into an ordinary day tomorrow. We're going to get up from bed and remember our baptism. We're going to make our bed. We're going to brush our teeth. We might lose something. There's going to be a minor irritation in there somewhere. We're going to have an argument. We pray that in each of these small, routine, habitual experiences, we'll remember you, connect with you, worship you through our actions, our thoughts, our prayers, and our reactions. In Jesus' name.